So Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, and he begins to give them the instructions, Moses, for how to build a tabernacle so that they can actually enter the presence of God. And before he can even finish detailing this, they begin to worship a golden calf. The very law that they already heard God speak to them verbally, and the very law that they said, we will never do that, and if we do, you can kill us. And so they violated the most precious law, the most fundamental law of worshiping another God. So the law required death. But like we already talked about with David, Moses goes up to God and he says, please forgive them. Forgive them, God. Now God's like, I'm going to kill them all. They agreed to die if they violate the law, and the law demands that they die, and they're under the covenant law. I'm going to kill them all. Now I don't want to kill them all, but the law demands that. And Moses says, please forgive them. And God's like, okay. It doesn't take much to convince God to forgive them. You and I are slow to forgiveness because we're selfish. But God, the minute Moses says, please forgive him, God's like, okay, because he's a God of love. And he immediately decides to forgive them. But he tells Moses, only those who repent will be forgiven. Moses goes down, and all the people who repent are forgiven, and those who refuse to repent died under the penalty law. Because they refused the forgiveness of God, they had to die under the law. But those who put themselves under the mercy of God instead of the law lived. Just like today, those who accept Christ are freed from the penalty of the law and live. But those who reject Christ and his forgiveness have to answer the law, and the law always brings death. And so they found forgiveness. But because of the golden calf, they lost the right to be priests. No longer would they be priests anymore. Only the tribe of Levi. Because only Levi stood next to Moses and did not worship the golden calf. Only Levi executed the penalty of the law. And because Levi did what no other tribe did, they were allowed to maintain. Not, they, weren't, they weren't given the right to be priests. They maintained the right to be priests because everybody had the right to be priests and everybody else lost the right to be priests. Levi was not rewarded for their obedience. Levi was allowed to keep their blessing because of their obedience. And everybody else lost their blessing. One of the better ways to parent is actually not to give kids the rewards, but to allow them to keep their blessings. And then when they disobey you, they lose the blessings they already have. Like, oh, we can't do this that we're already planning to do if you disobey me here. After this, even though Yahweh says, I have every right to leave you guys, 40 days later, you immediately reject me and you go after other gods. I should leave you. But God is not a God who abandons people. He pursues you no matter what. So he begins to lead them to the promised land so that they can go to the promised land and begin to expand the little micro garden of Eden, the tabernacle, into an entire land. And then eventually when they do that with the land, they can expand it to the surrounding nations and then to the world. So the garden of Eden is going to be the template to change the land of Canaan. He was going to take them there. They would go into the land of Canaan and drive the serpents out, the Canaanites. And then they would heal the nation, the land, and then they would begin to expand it. That was the ultimate goal. This is why we spent so much time on the Garden of Eden. So that you can understand what God is doing with each step. So we don't have to unpack this for hours and hours because we already have the template and that first two hours of what God was doing. And now we can just apply that template to every scenario we get to. And now when I say, oh, go to the Garden of Eden, dry the serpents out and expand the garden, we already know what that means. 
The difference is this garden is already tainted. But when they got there, they said, oh, no, the, the Canaanites are too overwhelming. It's too dark and scary. The darkness is too dark. The chaotic waters are too chaotic. The serpents are too overwhelming. We can't do this. And Caleb and Joshua says, yeah, Yahweh will do it for us. And they said, no, 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 no. He only brought us here for us to die. Because remember, only psychopaths save you to kill you. And that's what they're accusing God of. So they said, we can't do it. And God said, fine. If you refuse to take the land that I will give you, then you won't enter in. I'll give you exactly what you want. The only other place you can go is the wilderness. In the wilderness, there's nothing but death. And you will wander in the wilderness till all your bodies hit the floor. And you will die. And the very children that you're afraid that I was going to let die are the very children that will enter the promised land 38 years from now. Remember, they've been in the wilderness for two years already, and they're going to wander for 38 years, so it's 40 years total that they're in the wilderness. This is exactly what God does. He gives you what you want. You don't want to go into the land and dwell with me with all the blessings? Fine. We won't go in the land with all the blessings. But the only other place is not the land with all the blessings of the wilderness, and that's death. That's exactly what hell is. Fine. You want to live in a place that I don't exist without the fruits of the Spirit? Here's a place that I don't exist. Hell is just a more permanent version of the wilderness. And, And the people in the world today are saying, No, I don't believe you can give me life and blessings. I don't believe that you can make America or my life or my family or my business a good garden full of blessings. I don't believe you can do it. And I don't want to submit to you. And I don't want to trust you. I don't want you in my life. And God says, fine. When you die, here's a place that I don't exist. It's a wilderness for all eternity. Go there. I'm not there. But either are my fruits. Either are my blessings. Now, what do people do when they live without God? They destroy each other. Like we've seen throughout human history. So hell is not a place that God creates full of torment. Hell is a place that we create torment because we're just selfish. This is just micro examples of the macros that are coming later. They're warnings. The reason God is doing all this is to prepare you for the bigger thing, right? You you don't take your kids at two years old and throw them into life all by themselves and say, good luck, kid. You give them little micro-examples. You give little chances to trust, little chances to be on their own, to allow them to fail and learn when it's safe. You build scaffolding around them and then send them out into the living room. Not literal scaffolding, but rules and protection, and you're always there. And then you send them out into school. Then you send them out into the work or whatever to eventually one day you've trained them to go out into the world and function. Now, they have choices whether they will take that teaching or not, but you've given them every chance. That's all God's doing. The first testament is God just preparing us for the much bigger promised land that's coming and the much bigger wilderness is coming and the much different sacrificial lamb that will in law and Christ that will determine what path you choose. And this is all just a microcosm of what is coming macro later. This is the tutor before you're on your own. And now we're without excuse because we have the law and the prophets and we have Christ. Like Jesus told people in his ministry. And because of their unbelief 
and their contemptuous treatment of Yahweh. They made the nation, he made the nation of Israel wander in the wilderness until everyone who was 20 years old, older died. Yahweh honored their choice and gave them exactly what they wanted. So Israel goes back in the wilderness for 40 years. During that time, they continued to rebel against him. Even Moses eventually disobeyed Yahweh and lost the privilege of entering the promised land when he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it. You're like, wow, that's kind of harsh. They had to worship golden calves and reject the promised land before they're kicked out. Moses just goes boom, boom instead of speaking, and he's kicked out. Remember, he knew God way better than anybody else. And his blatant disobedience to God, though looks small in action, is way bigger in his heart because he was closer to God. Just like if you've got some kid at school or at your church who disobeys you, that's not as offensive as your 18-year-old kid or 17-year-old kid who's lived with you your entire life who just blatantly looks at you and disobeys you. Even your 2-year-old is not as offensive as your 17-year-old disobeying you because they know better. They've been with you for a long time in a closer relationship than the stranger there and the young one that you have in your home. And it's a far more trust relationally breaking than it is when they're younger or you don't know them very well. And so Moses was held to a higher accountability. But what this showed is even what God said, God said he was the greatest prophet that had ever existed and ever will exist other than Jesus, and that he knew God more intimately than anybody ever has before him and after him, and yet he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all this is doing is painting the absolute hopelessness of living righteously without Christ. Therefore, painting our absolutely desperate need for Christ. All this is pointing towards Christ. Now, Christ isn't in every little thing, Jesus, 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 and it's not obvious to them, but when Jesus comes along, it'll be obvious that all this was pointing to him. However, no matter how much they rebelled and complained, Yahweh kept sustaining them. He provided them water, bread, quail, over and over and over again. He never let any of their shoes or clothes ever wear out in the 40 years. He led them with the kind of glory of God. Day and night, they saw the cloud and the fire, and he never abandoned them, providing them shade from the sun through the cloud and light and heat from the elements of the desert cold and the animals that would attack them at night. He constantly provided for them. Now one day, Moab feared Israel so much as they came back to the promised land after 38 years, and they were ready to enter with a whole new generation. The Moabites feared the fact that Israel was so close to them, and they decided to attack them, but they failed. So they decided to curse them through spiritual magic, and they hired a magician by the name of Balaam. And Balaam was hired by them to curse Israel because they believe in curses, and they believe that this would work. But Balaam was visited by Yahweh, and Yahweh said, you are not going to curse them. You are going to bless them. And Balaam's like, oh, he's like, oh, yeah, you are. And Balaam is like, okay. That's the summary of basically <laughs> a whole chapter. Balaam gives these series of prophecies, seven blessings, some of them prophetic, some of them not. But in the middle of these blessings, there's one prophecy that really stands out. And it's Numbers 24, 17 through 19. And Balaam says, Behold, I have been given the eyes, I've been given eyes to see by Yahweh. And what do I see? I see him. But not now. I behold him, but not close at hand. A star will march forth out of Jacob. 
A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the skulls of Moab and the heads of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be his possession. Seir, his enemy, will also be his possession. But Israel will act valiantly. A ruler will be established from Jacob, and he will destroy the remains of the city. This is the second prophecy of the Messiah. Balaam says, Behold, in the great distance of time, I see him. Not now, but he's coming. Not near, but he's coming. And I see that he is the morning star, the light of God that will march up out of Jacob. He will come out of Jacob, rise up out of Jacob, and he will march forth with his army. And he will be unconquerable, undefeatable, as he goes out into the world and crushes all the enemies of God, and he destroys all evil on earth. And he will be the hope of the nations. Now notice, the first prophecy in Genesis 49, 8, was that this king one day would be a ruler forever who would bring joy and peace and hope and life abundantly to everybody. A ruler that we've never seen. This prophecy is saying that he will be a ruler that will destroy the evil that threatens our blessings. So these two prophecies together point to a day that a king will come who will both bring a joy and a life abundantly that no other ruler has ever brought and rule over the nations with joy and life abundantly. But he will also be a ruler who will destroy the evil in the world. So who is this ruler? He's the Adam and Eve that they can never be. He's the one who will come and rule and subdue and drive out the serpents and put down chaos and bring life and blessing and joy to the Garden of Eden. This is who he is. And what God is anticipating is every single time I'm going to give you the chance to be the new Adam and Eve of Israel, you're going to fail. And every time I command you to make the garden expand it, you're going to fail. But this is why every once in a while I'm going to give you another prophecy that gives you a little bit more detail of the one who will actually do what Adam and Eve and you failed to do. Be the one who drives and destroys the chaos and the serpents and brings the blessings of joy and life to the Garden of Eden and it will cover the entire world. This is what he's prophesying towards. A king of both destroying evil, freeing people from the bondage of evil, and bringing blessings, giving life. Israel is at the cusp of the promised land. And at this point, Moses is not allowed to go any further. But in Deuteronomy, Moses gives three final speeches before they enter the promised land. In the first speech, Moses recounts Israel's history in the wilderness. The exodus out into the wilderness, out of the wilderness to the promised land that they failed to take back into the wilderness and back to the promised land. He recounts their history. And the history pretty much goes like this. You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. It is not an encouraging speech. You rebelled and you rebelled and you rebelled. But despite that, God was faithful, faithful, faithful to bless you, even when you didn't deserve it. That's the gist of the speech. He continually forgave you. He continually showed you mercy. And he provided for them even when they ungratefully complained against him. Yahweh never gave up on them. And Moses urged this new generation to remember the great acts of Yahweh. The speech basically says, remember how your parents constantly rebelled against God, failed to trust him, 
and therefore they did not receive the blessings and the relationship of God, and they ultimately died. But also remember how Yahweh was merciful and faithful to them, even when they didn't deserve it. He constantly forgave them and pursued them, even when they didn't deserve it, and he blessed them. Now today, I lay before you life and death. You choose. Will you choose the actions of your parents and die like them? Or will you choose the obedience of the law and the repentance through sacrifice and have life in the promised land? Learn, remember, and that's the main message of Israel or the book of Deuteronomy. The main message of Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. Because only when you remember your history and your rebellion and the death that it brought and the trust in Yahweh and the life that it brought and the good, merciful character of God. Only then, when you remember, do you have the key to succeed. Because, see, we're forgetful creatures. This is why we're called sheep. And we just live in this blinder pinball machine of life. And we just allow ourselves to be whacked from one place to the other place with paddles. And we're blinded with all those lights all the time. And we just go from moment to moment. And when our world begins to fall apart and when things go wrong, we're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? There's no hope. And the only way that you can act faithfully now in the present is if you're constantly reminding yourself of the faithfulness of God in the past. And the more and more you hear testimonies, the more and more you go back and read your journals, the more and more you build monuments to God's faithfulness and keep them in your house as remembrance, the more and more that you're constantly doing this, the more likely you are to remember him in the presence and trust him because you don't have amnesia because you filled your life with remembrances. Even in cognitive therapy, even psychologists who are not Christians, this is an essence where they basically say, if you have a trouble with something, then, then write a list. These are the things I don't want to do. These are the things I do want to do. Constantly read that list every single day to remind you because they know that when we're in life, the emotions are so prevalent that we're blinded to the emotions and we follow our desires. But if you're constantly with this mantra saying, this is my safe, this is not my safe, over and over again, or this is who I am, then the more you repeat that, the less likely you allow emotions to overrule you and good logic is guiding you. Now the difference is, we don't have to be left to our own devices. We have the record of God and we have the Holy Spirit to remind us. But we do still have to do a little bit of that legwork to show that it matters. This is what God is saying to them in these speeches. Remember, remember who I am, and you will experience life. Those, here's the second point that Deuteronomy is making. True obedience is love. Don't obey because you want a reward. Don't obey because you're fear of punishment. Obey because you love God, because this God first loved you and did for you what no other God did, did for you what you don't deserve. And that can't help but make you want to love him in return. And so you obey obedience is not what you do to get a reward or to free yourself from a judgment. Obedience is the result of love. See, I don't start with obedience to get a reward and to keep judgment away. I remember who Yahweh is and I'm overwhelmed by his love for me. That, that makes me want to love him in return. And so then I offer love to him, which is my obedience. Obedience is the result of a relationship with God and loving him and wanting to love him in return. 
not what you do in order to get or not get. And that's the key. That's the key. It's why I'm obeying, right? You, you, you don't treat your spouse or your friends in a loving way because you're trying to avoid them yelling and screaming at you. That's not healthy. You don't love them and obey or treat them nicely and love them because you're hoping they'll give you good gifts for Valentine's Day and Christmas. There's a little bit of us in there that wants it because we're all selfish people, right? But your hope is that your spouse or your friend is loving you because they're overwhelmed by the relationship that you have together. Granted, we're flawed. and I can think of lots of ways that my friends and family have failed me. But yet even then there's enough love there that that makes me want to respond. With Yahweh, all he is is love and merciful and faithful. And so how much more, if we can love people who sin against us and are flawed, and we can give good gifts to them and love them for the right reasons, then how much more should we be able to love God for the right reasons who's perfect? And this is what Deuteronomy is saying. This is what love really truly is. This is what obedience truly is. And this is the message that he gives them. But, in the one of the final speeches, he says, but you're not going to do this. I know you're going to fail because you've got hard hearts and you're selfish and you're self-centered. And so you're going to fail. And when you fail, God, not if he will take you into exile, when he takes you into exile, you're going to be punished. You know this with your kids. I've told you a million times and I've given you so many chances, but I know tomorrow... We're still going to go through this again. And he tells them that they're going to fail. So this is where he gives another hope. The hope is that one day you need your heart circumcised. One day God will come in and circumcise your hearts. Now this is why it was important to understand why circumcision was so important in the Abrahamic covenant. Because remember what God does in a micro-physical way in the Abrahamic covenant circumcision, he's going to do a bigger and cosmic way in the circumcision of the new covenant. And so Moses says, just like you need to be circumcised to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, your hearts need to be circumcised. Because the heart, metaphorically, is the only organ in your body that also produces life and death. Because out of the heart comes those harsh, destructive words and desires and deeds that hurt people for your own gain. The things that you've said to people that you wish you never had said that you could take back. The things that you've done selfishly that have hurt people and you're still trying to mend that relationship. Out of the heart comes death. And at the same time, out of the heart comes life. The same mouth that cursed people and condemned them and slandered them is also the same mouth that encourages people and praises them. The same heart that produces good selfless acts for people and truly loves them. And so just like the male and female genitalia that produces both life and death, but can only produce life if it's marked by God. So God is saying your heart produces death. And even when you're producing life, it's still laced with death. You're still selfish. You're still doing it for rewards. But only Christ can come in and circumcise your hearts and actually give you a heart that will produce life all the time. And so Jeremiah will come along and say the same thing. The Messiah, the Spirit is coming one day. Moses just says, you need your heart circumcised. Jeremiah comes along and says, the Messiah and the Spirit will circumcise your hearts. And then Paul will come along in Romans and say, your hearts have been circumcised through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. And he is faithful and true to complete the work that he began in you. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor heaven nor hell, anything above or below can separate you from the love of God. 
because your hearts have been circumcised. This is what it's pointing towards. Everything is pointing towards what God is going to do one day. But until then, all they have is the law and the sacrificial system and a tiny little tabernacle. Because here's the beauty of God. You got to love God. He's always honest with you. He's like, I know you're going to fail, and I know you're going to go to exile. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything, and I'm not going to tell you you're a great, awesome singer when you're not, so you can go on American Idol and be embarrassed in front of everybody. Okay? You're going to fail, and you're going to go into exile. But because I love you so much, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to bring you back out of exile. So he gives them the restoration covenant in Deuteronomy 30. And the restoration covenant, he promises that he would bring them back out of exile one day. He would circumcise their hearts. He would destroy their enemies. And he would give them the ability to obey him because they actually want to so that they could prosper. Then he told them that one day a prophet like Moses would come and do all this for them. This is the third message of the Messiah. The third message of the Messiah. That this prophet would be like Moses in his greatness and access to God, his incredible righteousness. But this prophet would be greater than Moses because he will do what Moses could not do. Actually circumcise their heart. Actually remain faithful. And he would serve as prophet, king, and priest. He connected this to the prophecies of Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. And so in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, Yahweh says this, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God. At Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. Remember I told you they didn't want to hear his voice anymore because it was too scary, too convicting. And Yahweh said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. Yahweh said, I understand why they cannot handle my voice because they are wicked, evil sinners. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command to him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself require of him. And I will bring you one day, not a Moses, who couldn't really bring you up onto the mountain and hear the voice of God because you didn't allow him. I will bring you a prophet who will truly bring you up to the cosmic mountain of God so you can truly hear him. A prophet that will not fail like Moses did. And this is what Moses leaves Israel with right before they go into the promised land.